Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a fascinating new book, and we interview the author of that book. And this week, I'm very pleased to say we have Todd Weir on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, oops, Secularism and Religion in 19th Century Germany, The Rise of the Fourth Confession. Todd, as some of you may know, is also the host of New Books and in Intellectual History, and he serves as ably on that channel. But, of course, he's also a professor, and he writes books himself, and uh, this is one of them. We've had Todd on the network before, and I'm very glad to have him again. So, Todd, let me welcome you to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. So, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I, um, I came late to history. I, um, I, I studied uh, uh, third world development and such things as an undergraduate, um, but in the late 80s, I was in East Germany as an exchange student, and uh, my interest in things German quickly became part of history after 1989, and um, I then went back to Germany and lived there for some years and studied history then finally in the 90s uh, and went through and got a PhD at Columbia University. Um, and, and really, I think going back to that interest in East Germany, I was very interested in the history of socialism. And, and I suppose it's really my own uh, upbringing that I was always interested in utopian movements. So I kind of put these, these interests together and chose to look at the history of German secularism, which is really a kind of nice way of saying free thought and atheism. Mm -hmm. um, so the, these are movements that were very important to German socialists in particular. And so it was a it was a convenient way to examine the relationship between socialism and religion. Um, and that's what that's what brought me to the topic. Mm -hmm. You say there's something about your upbringing that brought you to utopian ideas. Well, you want to talk I, about that or not? Yeah, sure. No, I mean, you know, I was I was uh, I was 16. I think I was a very sort of uh, uh, idealistic 16 year old. And I, and I even had a journal. I used to write a journal, you know, with all of my thoughts and my philosophy. And mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I was sitting in suburban Bellevue outside of the city of Seattle. And uh, I remember on a sunny day sitting on a hill and intensively writing down my very important thoughts. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I was an activist in college and uh was there was the reagan era you know opposed to um, all of the reagan uh intervention in central america and so on sure. so yeah it eventually as it often happens one's active interests turn into sort of passive academic interests yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so i i became a historian of these things that i once thought i was going to do yeah, that's funny. It's funny you mentioned that. We must be about the same age because I remember when I was in college, I was quite the socialist and I had a Karl Marx t-shirt and took classes in Marxist economics. I just met with a fellow who I went to college with who um, he took all of this rather more seriously than I did and has been a socialist organizer his whole life, an American. So, yeah. Wow. Rare. I remember this time. I remember this. Well, he lives uh, in Vermont, but he travels all over the place talking about socialism to various groups in the United States. His name's Ashley Smith. Very, he's, a, he's a great guy. Um, very brilliant guy. Yeah, so those were the days. Those those were, yeah, I mean, I try to explain to my students sometimes that there was a time when socialism and, and these ideas were taken seriously and weren't just the stuff of history, and they were just look at me blankly. <laughs> yeah, well, although we, even even at that time as, as Americans, I mean, we were kind of far removed from yeah, the history of real socialism as, as in workers uh, struggling for, um, you know, more rights and, and for some kind of utopian society. I mean, I think the utopian society bit we had from leftover from the 60s yeah. in the U.S., but uh, the connection to the 
the labor unions was pretty much absent in, in my growing up. So. Oh, yeah, mine too. But I did live in a kind of a commune in graduate school, so I thought that was all very hip. But anyway, enough about that. Uh, those <laughs> are bygone days. So tell us why you wrote this book. I mean, you kind of have told us why you wrote this book, but tell us some more about why you wrote this book. Well, uh, yeah, I was interested in this question of what's the religious connection to socialism? And, and I began to poke around when I was looking for a dissertation topic and was going to do something on the 1920s and on sort of radical cultural movements in the socialist sphere. Uh, and then I, I discovered these, these people called free thinkers and started to, to want to study them. And of course, as often one does, it's a big mistake for historians. I want to go back to the origins, you know. Yeah. So it took me back eventually to the 1840s. And the book uh, looks at secularism from the 1840s when it emerges up until the First World War. Um, and that's, you know, that's that's what this book does. Um, and I, and I'm, I, I'm sad to say I'm, we can talk about it later, but I'm, I'm still involved in this topic looking now at the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But to go, I mean, to go back even further than that, for reasons which I won't go into, I have been reading Marx with my students, and Marx makes pretty clear, or Engels makes pretty clear, I can't remember which, that the sort of original socialist impulses in Europe, at least, were uh, of religious and even Christian origin. Yeah, the Marxists are interesting because both Marx and Engels... He doesn't uh, like those people, by the way, but he does say... That they yeah, they, well, they, they have this distinction between the scientific and the utopian socialists. And for them, the utopian socialists are uh, like Robert uh, Owen and, and Babeuf and all of these figures who they see as uh, sort of fantastic socialists, not grounded in science and reality. And eventually they see them as tied up with religion and they see their own brand of socialism as scientific. But of course, as people know who have looked at Marx, I mean, Marx develops his entire edifice of, of theory out of religious criticism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so even, even Marx and Engels are very much tied up with religious criticism. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's begin by providing some, I guess, vocabulary here. So one of the words is secular, which means worldly, I think yeah. from the Latin. But what is, when we say something is secular uh, in the sort of general sociological sense, what do we mean by that? Well, uh, yeah, as you said, secular would be worldly as against religious um, in, in the way that we might use the terms. The, the interesting thing about the term secularism, obviously ism implies that it's a kind of a belief, um, a, a political movement. Um, and that you secularism emerges in the 1850s in England as a word appropriated or rather used by free thinkers. Um, so secularism, I chose as the word that I was going to use for this book rather than say free thought or atheism, because the way it's defined by George Holyoke, who's this English free thinker, uh, he says that secularism has both a negative aspect, which is criticism of the untruth of dogmatic religion but it also has a positive aspect which is uh, a faith in something grounded in science and so he overcomes this misconception that many people have including i think the new atheists today um, when they say that their that their anti-religious activities are based purely in scientific in, uh, enlightenment uh, and what what holyoke very clearly says is that there's also a positive faith implied in secularism. And that was really my starting point for analyzing modern uh, free thought and atheism and these various things, is that it has both a positive, you could call it a religious, ethical side, and a negative, anti-clerical, critical side. 
Mm-hmm. So that's one aspect of secularism. And the other reason I found it so enticing is that there's a huge literature now emerging, especially in the United States, but also in India and then in the UK, uh, associated with post-colonial theory around secularism. And this this entire literature uh, is essentially arguing that the secularization thesis, right, that everything's becoming more worldly and less religious, mm-hmm. that that idea that comes out of Max Weber and others that that was, uh, does not describe reality, uh, but rather it describes a, an ideology used by political elites to rule over religious minorities. Mm-hmm. So that the state in the 19th century developed um, a secular policy where they could stand above the religions by appearing not to take sides in religious struggles. Mm-hmm. So that whole theory of secularism is, is very... Uh, uh, it's a very major part of contemporary political theory. And and I found it very interesting to engage with that because the one thing that those people tend not to look at are the actual secularists. <laughs> I mean, the, the free thinkers. Yeah, go ahead. So, so that's kind of intriguing, right? The people that call themselves secularists are excluded from the literature on secularism uh, today. Uh, and when they talk about secularism, people like the anthropologist Talal Assad and others what they really mean are, are liberals who develop a notion of separation in church and state. Uh, so the contradiction there I thought was kind of intriguing. Uh, and, and I do a bit of investigation of that, that contradiction. Um, and what it's really about is to try to show, you know, who are the secularists? And the fact is they're, they increasingly in the 19th century are not liberals. They're actually radicals, working class, and then eventually socialists. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a dynamic that interests me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the new atheists because I, they're, I mean, they're an intriguing lot, and I don't, I don't think, uh, I, I don't think we do a lot of uh, damage to them if we sit. Well, maybe we do. I don't know. They don't read a lot of history. That much I'll say. Um, at least the ones that I know of and have interviewed. Uh, so th- there's a second term in your book which is very important, but I think it's kind of lost. I was just talking to my students about this confession. What a confession is. My students had no idea what a confession was. They, they knew what a church was, sort of, but they didn't know what a confession was and what confessionalism might be. Yeah, well, that's really, that comes then out of the German context. So that's where I pick up the German literature because in German, confession, uh, the word originally comes, as it does in English, out of uh, Reformation-era confessions of faith. So it would be a dogmatic statement, I believe this and that, right? So there'd be the, uh, uh, the Augsburg Confession, uh, and so on, uh, from the time of Luther. And um, and out of that, then in the German case, uh, developed a notion in the, in the 19th century that confession um, really was a way of describing an entire religion. So Catholicism was a confession and Protestantism was a confession. Okay, there used to be two Protestant confessions, but let's forget that. One Protestant confession at, by the end of the 19th century. Uh so the notion is society is divided up according to religious communities. They are confessions. And the term confession really becomes then tied to people's religious identity. Not as, and this is a contradiction, right? Not necessarily in the sense of what's your personal faith, but rather what's your label, mm-hmm. right? Which communities do you belong to? Mm-hmm. And so there's developed now in the last 20 years a big literature around the role that these confessional labels, these religious labels, and community belonging played in German politics. And the argument's been made that 
it's not just the Reformation era that saw wars, wars of religion, but in fact, in the 19th century, you have a kind of latent war of religion between, say, a Catholic uh, party, the center party, and various liberal parties who are tend to be de facto Protestant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I did with the term is, is the, the subtitle of the book is The Rise of the Fourth Confession. And my argument there is that it's not enough to just look at Protestants and, and Catholics and how they fight and how they don't get along. That's not the, the only, uh, that, does, that does not describe the full playing field when it comes to religion and 19th century politics. We have to include also Jews, right? The third confession. Mm-hmm. Other authors have talked about that. The Helmut Walzer Smith, for example, talks about the need for a tri-confessional model, including Jews. And what I'm arguing for is a kind of quadra-confessional model that will include secularists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a really, I would say, if I'm going to sum it up, the big argument of the book. Yeah. So, so we've gone through these two things now, and that is what secularism is and what confessionalism is. Could you now, before we actually get to the kind of meat of the book, could you tell us what the confessional order was in, uh, again, we, we have Germany a little later, but we have Prussia and these other German states, and what, what the kind of legal order was for people, and it was assumed everybody would belong to one of these, right? I mean, there isn't, there isn't the assumption that you would be outside this uh, framework. What, what exactly, what, what was the legal f- framework for this or constitutional framework? Right. Great question. You know, and it's so strange, I think, from especially an American perspective to realize how much religion structured people's rights in, in early modern society and even in modern society. So coming out of the wars of, of religion uh, in, the, in the 17th century uh, and before, you had these various agreements. Uh, and the last major one being the Treaty of Westphalia, where it's agreed that there are going to be, and, and it varies from state to state, but essentially there are going to be three recognized confessions, Reformed, Lutheran, and Catholic. And uh, if you belong to one of these recognized confessions, you, your community has certain rights. You can have a church, you can ring bells on Sunday, uh, and you can have public uh, worship. If you belong to a minority group, say the Mennonites or, or Greek Catholics, then you're going to have fewer rights. You may not be allowed to have public uh, prayers. Your, your um, clergymen might not have full rights. They certainly won't receive state salaries. Uh, and then sort of at the bottom of the hierarchy in a certain ways is, are the, is the Jewish communities. And so the Jews would have been not only, uh, uh, say, not allowed to, to have uh, um, certain public rights, but also as individuals, they wouldn't be allowed to hold high state office. And the justification would be uh, both a religious one and a, a one about nationality. They were seen as another nationality. But the religious one was that uh, Jews... Jews could not, for instance, take oaths in the court. So they couldn't administer oaths. So a Jew could not become a judge mm-hmm. if, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's, that's a bit the sort of legal framework, the constitutional framework coming into the 19th century um, that, that dissidents faced. Uh, so just, just to guess your next question, what happens in the 1840s is that you have the emergence of these uh, groups of Christian rationalists. That was and my next question. I, I thought it might be. <laughs> I was just guessing. Go ahead. But anyway, so you have these, you have these, these groups of, of, uh, of Christians who are arguing that the Bible 
needs to be and is ultimately um, compatible with scientific discovery and scientific reason. And so they, they're arguing that, um, you know, all sorts of things, but essentially they want to get away from what they consider dogmatic aspects of Christianity. Okay. That uh, let's say the virgin birth. Okay. That they'll, they'll contest that and they'll say, well, it can't really be the case that Mary was a virgin, you know, so they'll, they'll argue bringing science in and they'll try to reconcile in their own way, uh, Christianity and religion. And this, for the Orthodox Christians in the 1840s, who are supported by the Prussian state and the king, uh, this is anathema. And so they then, in the 1840s, they're trying to squeeze out these these rationalists. Uh, And eventually, the the king of Prussia at the time uh, effectively forces them out of the church. And uh, instead of giving them the rights of a confession which would be, say, equivalent to the Protestant church, instead of just forcing them out of the church and saying, go find your own church, he forces them out, but he says, I'm not going to give you the status of a confession. I'm going to effectively give you the status of the Jews. Um, And so effectively a non-confessional status where they have very few rights and they're subjected to police scrutiny and so on. So in this way, he forces the dissidents out of the church and he also uh, uh, politicizes religious dissent uh, at the same time. Um, so that's 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 the kind of initial um, spark of the whole secularist movement. Mm-hmm. And we should just make clear, if, if let me understand correctly, these people. Now there was a lot of anti-clericalism during what we call the Enlightenment. These people were not anti-clerical by and large. They simply wanted to uh, look at things like the scriptures and the revelations in a different way. Well, anti—I mean, anti-clericalism obviously implies also being against uh, the church hierarchy, uh, and often against priests. So it, the, the fact is that these are people within the churches who are nonetheless against the church hierarchy. They're against the orthodoxy. So in that sense, they are anti-clerical um, within a Christian framework. And the same thing is happening in the Jewish communities. You have you have Jewish dissenters arguing against, say, the, the Talmud and against certain aspects of the Jewish tradition. Um, so the same thing, they're all arguing in the name of some kind of religion of humanity. They, they like That's a term they like to use, mm-hmm. the religion of humanity. Um, so it's, it's very quickly politicized. It's, it, it is radical. They know that they are radicals. Um, the church orthodoxy say these people aren't even really truly religious. They're just pretending to be religious mm-hmm. <laughs> because they want to they want to make do politics uh, in a way that they can uh, they will avoid being termed political agents. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let's, let's address that question just very briefly. I mean, is it is that a valid argument? I mean, because it, I was talking to this with my students about this re- recently, and you know, I say, well, can you be religious without believing in God or without believing in the scriptures? You know, we went back and forth about this, and um, I don't know. I mean, in that context, were those people religious? Uh, well, obviously, for the Orthodox, they weren't. Um, the, the, the Orthodox, they were, for instance, many of them very quickly gave up belief in the divinity of Christ. Uh, and they said he was just a good teacher. He was a very ethical man. He had high standards. He was a philosopher. He was like mm-hmm. Plato. Yeah. So, so all those arguments are made. And then, you know, for the truly Orthodox, I mean, whatever, the, any kind of, I don't know, for most Christians, that would be the point at which they stopped being Christian. 
and they might be deists or something of the sort. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's really a, I try to avoid the, the, any kind of uh, definition of what means to be religious. Uh, and uh, the reason I do that is because, uh, you know, I think you have to take sure. seriously what the, what the historical actors are saying. And as soon as you apply a, a, a label, right, or a test, if I say, do you believe in a transcendental God or do you believe in a personal God, right? That is a, per, that is a God like a human being. Uh, is that my test for religion? If I apply that test, then I'm going to have to say that many of these people who are involved in a religious organization are not religious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I avoid that. Um, I see. I see. So this is, they were given, they were, uh, they were given, they were tolerated. That's the word, isn't it? What's the word in German? I can't remember. Uh, tolerate. Tolerate. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, they were tolerated, but that's different than the sense when we think of when we say, oh yes, we have religious tolerance in the United States. This is a different thing. Right. They were, they were tolerated as individuals. I mean, it's a very complicated thing. They, they, the, the legal framework for this dissidence that emerged in the 1840s was, uh, we'll tolerate you as individuals. Um, in other words, you can leave the, the Catholic church, you can leave the Protestant church and you're not committing a crime. Okay. Prior to that, it, it would have been, uh, uh, you know, more questionable deed. So there's new legislation. Yes, you can leave the church. No problem. Go ahead. Goodbye. However, if you're a school teacher, if you're, if you're an employee of the state, you might lose your job. Right. <laughs> because why? Well, the argument is um, the state itself is Christian. It's a Christian state. We're, yeah. we, ha we, have a, we have a role to play in divine history. And it would be, uh, you know, it would be doing injustice to the citizens of Prussia if the state itself abandoned Christianity. Right. 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 So how can we have state officials who are not Christian? Mm -hmm. So, so right. the dissidents are going to lose those rights. Right. Right. So I guess the thing I'm trying to point out is, I, I don't know if I'm pointing it out, I'm drawing a conclusion and I don't know if it's true, that there were, if there are four confessions, two of them are actually accepted. Right. right? And two of them are merely tolerated. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And barely tolerated yeah. and tolerated as individuals, but not necessarily as religious communities. The Jews are obviously uh, in a sense more tolerated because they have rabbis, they have, uh, you know, inst uh, physical uh, locations. I mean, they have, uh, uh, they, you know, they, 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 they're not seen as being a political organization necessarily, whereas the, the dissidents are on the left for the most part. Um, and they, they can very often be t termed political. And in the 19th century, if you're a political association in Germany, that, that means you're going to be observed by the police. Mm -hmm. At certain times, it means police are going to come and sit at every meeting you hold and not only sit there, but sit at the front table <laughs> in uniform, <laughs> take notes. Well, at least they're honest. I kind of like that in a way. Yeah. I respect that. Well, they, they have spies too. They have spies too, which makes good reading in the archives. Yeah. You get the spies reports and then you also get the, the police official report who's sitting at the front. Yeah. Uh, so the dissidents, uh, you know, were, were always on notice that they could be uh, dissolved at any time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, were these? I'm glad you used the word dissident because there's a long tradition of of, of dissidents in in Christianity. You know, like Luther was one, and so on, and so on, Zwingli, and blah blah blah. Uh, did they attempt to form what we would call churches? Oh yes, they had they had their own congregations. They, they, Major, and this is one thing that surprised me really. Until the until 1880, the only free thinking organizations in Germany 
were called free religious congregations. Yeah, that, that surprised so, me too, Todd. Yeah. So for the first 35 years of the history of atheism, it's all taking place in churches. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it's fascinating. You know, they, they, uh, you have them, you have priests effectively um, of in the 1870s arguing using Darwin and Ernst Haeckel that effectively God doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And doing this in front of their their congregations, you know, and, and this is all fine. And they all, they, you know, they, of course, that there's constant fighting within these movements because some of them are still Christian and some of them still do believe and so on. But uh, there's a drift towards atheism, um, especially in the big urban communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're, they're, you know, they think of themselves, they, they, they hold on to the term religious um, partly because they don't want the police to dissolve their organizations, right. but partly because they just, they have a new definition of religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and how did these, uh, how were these people thought of in their communities? If you just sort of stood up one day and said, um, I am a religious rationalist and I, uh, I am no longer going to be a member of this congregation. Did they, did they keep score? Did, was, there, was there scorn heap upon them or like, we won't marry your daughter or that kind of thing? Well, well that, that, this is where it's, this is why it's so important to look at the term confession because you'll have a lot of liberals, right? Scientists who are effectively atheists, right? And they may write journal articles about their atheism and so on, but they don't, they don't leave the church. Right. So, so if you're a good, say you're a university professor and you happen to be an atheist and you're a biologist, you can probably be somewhat frank about your atheism, maybe not everywhere, but in certain places. But if you actually sat down and wrote a letter and left the church officially, you might lose your job. Yeah. Uh, So could you, would someone marry your daughter? Yes. As long as you stay in the church. Uh Right. Because you're an atheist, that's fine. That's not that's not necessarily going to be the hindrance uh, if, you know, in the liberal and the liberal community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot does depend on who is willing to take the step to actually step out of the church, as they say in German, austreten, right, to leave the church mm-hmm. uh, and who's not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So you mentioned this. Um, I don't know how to characterize it. Slide toward atheism. And I know that something you've written about and we've talked about before is uh, the movement from Christian rationalism to uh, to monism of its of its couple of varieties. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. The, um, I mean, monism is effectively the argument that there isn't a split between uh, the physical world and the mental world. Right. That there's no mind body divide. Right. So getting away from Cartesian dualism towards a Spinozan uh, monism, unity. And, and uh, Baruch Spinoza, who was a early modern philosopher, believed that behind all appearances, there was one unitary substance. And so that effectively the universe was, was made of a kind of unitary, on, a, on some level was all one, right? Mm-hmm. And for, for him, God was identical with that oneness of the universe. So what happens in, in the 1840s is you have um, a lot of these rationalists um, under really the kind of pressures of this dissident conflict with the state. They're radicalizing very quickly. And within about five years, uh, quite a number of them become monists. And they, they start to develop a theology of monism. Um, and uh, it has all sorts of fascinating aspects. Um, 
just here's just a random one that, that was in the book. Uh, there's a the preacher in Berlin is called Robert Browner. He's a he's a Catholic uh, priest who becomes the leader of this dissident movement in Berlin in 1845. In 1850, he writes a free catechism, and in there he says, um, you know, that effectively, if you see something, um, you the act of perception is based on an identity between the mind and the thing it perceives. Mm-hmm. So he's overcoming even Kantian modes of perception somewhat. He says that in order for the, the spirit to catch fire, in, in other words, if you see something, let's say art or a political movement or there's some passion that you witness out in the world, you have an immediate emotional response to it because in order for the flame to travel, Right, and it's a nice optical metaphor. In order for the tra- flame to travel and to catch fire inside of your mind through the eye, there has to be wood bundled in the mind. That's the same wood that's burning outside, mm. right? Uh, so, so there's that unity, right? That monist unity that 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 is there before the any kind of perception takes place, uh, and and so that's just one little example of how this kind of monist thinking works. So, for somebody like Browner. Um, God is, say, expresses his nature through the development of nature in evolution. Mm-hmm. So, so God is a, is a constant revelation through evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, there is no separation between God and the world. There is no beyond, right? Mm-hmm. There's no heaven. There's no realm in which uh, God is that we aren't, mm-hmm. right? So this is a kind of monist thinking that, that, that crops up. Mm-hmm. And by the 1870s, it's really, it's quite widespread. And, and it even changes then towards a little bit more of a kind of a harder mechanistic, scientific, rationalist uh, mode mm-hmm. that we would associate more with, say, Darwinism. Mm-hmm. So, so would it be correct to differentiate this view, and I'll characterize this in a second, from modern atheism or what the modern atheists believe, that is that there's just nothing? In other words, it seems to me that these early monists or sort of uh, hardworking Christian rationalists are saying uh, it, the scriptures aren't what we think they are. Um, and there, there is no uh, God in his heaven in the sense that it's described in the old and new Testament, but you can still develop a kind of religion on the basis of this notion that there's one kind of stuff everywhere. In other words, there's something positive to it. It's not just that there's nothing, but there's something yeah. we can say about this that will inform our lives spiritually, whatever that means, and ethically. Yeah, yes, I, I, I would agree with that. I, I think that they there is, you know, it's it's a sort of you can see really steps of this belief emerging already in deism in the in the eighteenth century and and sort of evolves then in the nineteenth century under the influence of this cult of natural science, mm-hmm. you know, and this this faith that they really are able to have scientific discoveries that are that are uh, matching this philosophy, mm-hmm. but just to go to the to today's new atheists, you know, I've looked a little bit at say Daniel Dennett or um, even Dawkins, uh, Richard Dawkins, and I find that they are quite monistic. Uh, I don't find that they say there's nothing. That, in other words, I don't think that the new atheists argue um, that natural science disproves not only God, but but also disproves meaning in the universe. Mm-hmm. I think I think if you look at them, it's quite interesting. Somebody like Dennett, uh, both Dennett and um, 
Dawkins, I think, are very committed, say, to aesthetic experience of nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use a lot of, um, you know, poetic language, rich metaphor. Um, uh, so I think they really are sort of on an aesthetic level trying to um, create an emotional experience of the totality of nature. Mm-hmm. So I, so anyway, I have a little bit of a different view on the new atheists. I, I think that they really are, they're not very self-reflective monists in other words they, they haven't done their history as, as we were saying at the out the beginning of the interview i don't think they've done their history well but I, I do think they have a lot in common with these 19th century monists okay well i'll, I'll agree with you i don't really know that much about them i, I know what I, I read about them on the bbc or something so uh, i admit that you can send me emails talking about my ignorance the, uh, <laughs> no i have read a little bit of them and, and i you know i i, I do follow it a, a little bit i'm interested in the, the um the, the question of the new atheism and i well, I, yeah, that's kind of a digression. But so let's talk a little bit about this. There's something in your book called idealistic monism. And, it, and I had trouble wrapping my mind around that. What could that be if they don't believe there's a spirit world? Right. Well, it, there's a nice, um, at the very beginning of the history of monism, when the word, say, is first used, which is associated with a, a, um, a early modern philosopher, uh, Wolf, I think it's Christian Wolf in Germany. And he already then recognized that the whole problem with monism is that if you say there's spirit and there's there's body and they are one, if effectively, his argument is that if take a monist and push them, they're always going to claim that one of those is more important, mm-hmm. right? It's always going to be either the spirit is the is the real monist unity, or they're going to say it's the matter, mm-hmm. right? So that and the argument that's that's made or I make anyway is that in the early 19th century you have a lot of idealist monists. Right. Hegel is a good example. Schelling, the great German, you know, idealists, uh, in a sense, they have a monist program. The God, the idea, the world spirit is evolving and it evolves through matter. Right. It needs to have uh, constant manifestations of itself in matter. But nonetheless, the, the real driving unity is coming out of spirit. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the mid 19th century, you get all these material so-called materialists, Ludwig Büchner, being the most famous one, probably, you know, people hear the word materialism and they think, oh, it's just matter is everything. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it, they always are being monistic. They're always claiming for matter spirit. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so the, the, the biggest bestseller of materialism in the 19th century is called Kraft und Stoff. Right. Uh, And I don't know what's the English title. Uh, uh, Power and power and matter. Right. Um, mm-hmm. That's the, I'm sure that's the wrong title. I don't know how we translate anyway. Power and matter. So <laughs> the title is suggesting that, say, energy and matter, these dualisms are going to be uh, overcome uh, through some kind of monistic unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's a little bit of like the, the idealistic monism versus the the materialistic monism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the big shift really that happens in the mid middle of the 19th century is the shift towards a more materialistic yeah. monism. So, so, so to put it in philosophical language, I don't know if we want to do that, but they're both reductionisms. It just depends on what's being reduced to what. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, <laughs> right. I agree with you there. Yeah, okay. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, th- there is a strong association you say between um, this increasingly uh, naturalistic monism or materialistic monism and uh, leftist politics. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Because it doesn't seem to me that they're, well, I, 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 I'm hesitant to use this word, but necessarily associated. It seems they're contingently associated. So could you, could you speak a little bit about that? 
Uh, sure, I think it, it goes back. I mean, there's many facets of that. Why those two become uh, allied in, in in different ways, uh, but a lot of it has to do with this. The going back to the confessional, right? You have a state church. You have uh, a political and social system in which your place in that system depends on your religious affiliations. Um, so in the end, um, if you're going to be a member of the elite or uh, you want to uh, at least keep your job, you are going to, on a surface level at least, um, remain true to Christianity. Um, so that opens up, of course, for the for leftists that want to attack the state, want to attack the social elites it opens up to them the possibility of embracing a philosophy that is implicitly anti-Christian, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it, it, uh, to argue that there is no God, that there is merely the laws of nature, you know, maybe with some kind of big unity and of totality of, of, of the natural world, but to, but to make that argument, you're implicitly attacking the religious order upon which the state is founded. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so, so that that's that's certainly a key part of it. There are other facets. Another facet of it is that uh, you know, the, the, to the degree that the left is supported by members of the lower classes or the lower middle classes, um, there's an educational component to it. Uh, if you're if you're a, a let's say an educated factory worker, right? You've had six years of primary school. You like to read on the side. Um, if you had to pick, if you had your choice between Darwin and and uh, Hegel, or even Darwin and Marx, you're not going to read Hegel or Marx because you have six years of of uh, primary school. But Darwin, you can get your head around. Mm-hmm. And if you if you read somebody who takes Darwin and turns him into a kind of monist worldview, like Ernst Haeckel, Haeckel's even better, you know. Mm-hmm. And they know how to write for the for the common people, and so it becomes a knowledge that's very powerful for lower middle class people. Mm-hmm. or lower class people mm-hmm. so there's a sociological element to that knowledge too that's that's important mm-hmm. so there are a few big moments in the last third of the 19th century in german history and i just want to know about the relationship you talk about the relationship between these events and the um naturalistic monists or the can we call them secular uh people at this time so uh the first one is obviously german unification what, what did what did did what did the monists think about that, or how did they, how did they react to it, or were they for it or against it, or what did they say? Um, I, I think, I mean, the um, these free religious congregations who are the really organized uh, force at this time. Um, you know, I, I think many of them, certainly many of them, did support um, unification. Um, they're not they're not by majority at this point socialist. The socialists are noted for having some of them anyway, opposed unification. Uh, but, but what's interesting then is, is the, the struggle that takes place after national unification, which is the so-called culture war. Yeah, that was the second okay. one I was going to talk about. Let's, uh, let's talk. Okay. Well, the, I mean, you know, okay. Just to finish on unification, uh, there, there is no, um, you know, there's no obvious uh, reason for most of these folks to oppose unification. Uh, certainly if they were Prussian, Right, the Prussians were seen as kind of the victors behind unification. So the the the, the Prussian um, free religious many of them supported it. Uh, it. You know, if they were Southern German and didn't really like the terms of unification, uh, then there's more room for being oppositional. But um, you you wanted to ask me about the the culture war? Yeah, the culture war. Yes, that follows. Well, well, the culture war is is this. Um, it's often known as the inner foundation of the Reich. 
right? It's the kind of domestic um, uh, conflict over national identity, right? Okay, now we have the national borders. What is the nature of the state, right? In a place like the United States, it's we have a really healthy myth, I think, in the United States, right? We have the we have the Declaration of Independence. It's a pretty good place to start, right? So our myth <laughs> our myth about ourselves is we all love freedom, and you know, that's why we're together, right? It's just okay. Yeah. That's you know, that's pretty good. It's a good myth. <laughs> yeah, it's a good myth. The Germans, of course, united with what? A bunch of monarchs got together and unified the country, and in, in you know at the end of the war against France, it's not such an exciting myth. So there, the one of the the op, the op, opportunities that emerges for the Prussians as a way of uniting Bismarck, who's this you know radical conservative monarchist. Bismarck sees an opening to work with the liberals, who are the most powerful political party at the time, uh, in anti-Catholicism. And so he opens up a series of attacks on, effectively on the power of the Catholic Church, uh, and then eventually also with the Catholic Party, the Center Party, uh, with legislation, discriminatory legislation that is principally aimed at the Catholic Church. It does also affect the Protestant Church, but but to a lesser degree. And uh, and this is a major event, actually, in the formation of modern politics in Germany. And it's usually, you know, interpreted as a bi-confessional conflict. Right, it's a conflict between Protestants and liberals, who are usually Protestant, um, and the Catholics. And and what I said is in the book is I said, well, you know, what about the secularists? What about these dissidents? Right? How do they fit in? And what I found was that um, uh, already at the very beginning of the this culture war, these secularists are already pushing an anti-Protestant agenda as well as an anti-Catholic agenda, and. Liberals are actually okay with this for the most part, but that at the crisis point of the Kultur Kampf, which comes around 1870, 1877, 1878, um, liberals start to get very queasy about this uh, relationship to secularists, right? Secularists are drifting towards the socialists, and the, the liberals start to really back out of the Kultur Kampf. And, um, you know, most historians see the, the fact that liberals backing out of the Kultur Kampf as partially a victory of Catholic um, defense. The Catholics had defended themselves effectively against this onslaught. Um, but what, I, what I'm arguing is we need to really look at those, those, the quadra-confessional aspects, right? The, the fact is that the, um, you know, there's a new force emerging from the left, which is socialism, and it has their kind of religious face, which is called secularism, and it doesn't really sit with the, the liberals very well. And, and that, for me, is a, is a key element of, of why liberals begin to buckle and the Kulturkampf um, fails. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So th then there's a, a kind of a third thing here. I mean, maybe it's th that I studied this at one time and uh, Germany is of course the, the I, I don't, it, the, the, I was going to call it the home of European socialism. I don't know if that's true or not, but the SPD, the, the German Socialist Party grew very large. And then of course uh, there, there were anti-socialist laws and, and, uh, since many of the people who practice free religion or monism or, or, or however you call it, were socialists, how did it, or at least they were on the left, how did it affect them? Right. Well, the um, you know, in that period of the the height of the Kulturkampf, um, we start to have some socialists who are going to start using dissidents as a political tool, uh -huh. right? And so we have somebody like Johann Most who is later the, the most well-known anarchist, probably a German anarchist of the 19th century. Um, and he goes to New York and becomes John Most. Um, at any rate, Johann Most uh, 
leads a campaign against the Protestant Church in 1878 uh, as a as a radical socialist, and he he says that we have to strike at the state churches using this weapon of of dissidents, right? Have people leave the churches. Um, in the end, that kind of backfires because that is one of the key elements that that Bismarck then uses to justify the the um, the socialist laws, the laws that come in later that year to um, take away rights from the socialist party and to sort of effectively, you know, push it into the, uh, into the shadows for, for a number of years. Uh, so, so there, you know, there is this political connection born out of this kind of, uh, you know, homologous um, structure, right? You have on the one hand discrimination against re- religious dissidents. On the other hand, you have discrimination against uh, political dissidents, socialists. And so there's an affinity there. Um, but but the, the the socialist leaders realize in the 1880s that it's it's not really in their to their advantage to have um, a very overt relationship with secularism because you know they they want to be able to make inroads say with Catholic workers and it's not going to 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 write atheists on their foreheads and march into the Catholic <laughs> neighbor, neighborhood isn't going to really do very well um, yeah. so they back off yeah you know. I see. I see. So, so we've talked about the relationship between these um, uh, secularists and uh, well, socialism on the one hand, and then we talk Protestant and Catholicism. And at the book, you, you go on at some length about the uh, opinions about and relations uh, uh, to uh, uh, Jews. That is the, uh, the the third of the fourth confession you talked about. So, can you um, lay bare for us those relations? Sure. Well. The, the interesting thing about the end of the Kulturkampf, right, that as soon as the, the struggle with the Catholics kind of recedes, it's the birth moment of anti-Semitism as a modern movement. And that, that term is coined in 1878, which is the year that the Kulturkampf fails, right? So I think there's, an, there's a relationship here uh, between the end of one chapter of this confessional struggle in the 19th century and the beginning of another. Mm. Uh, and, and really, it goes back to this confessional system. Um, the Jews had been discriminated against by the Christian state. Okay, And so Jews became associated in the minds of many Germans and in the minds of many Jews with religious dissent. Because the religious dissenters in the 1840s, the Christians, effectively received a discrimination similar to that that the, that the Jews were suffering under. So there was a natural affinity between Jewish emancipation and emancipation of dissidents. And liberals would argue that case, right? That both of these minorities needed to have full rights in a modern liberal democracy, or at least a modern constitutional monarchy. Um, so that was a key claim that liberals made. So in the minds of Christian conservatives, um, they understood Jewish emancipation to be a, a threat, perhaps greater than the threat of the dissidents. Um, they thought that if you gave Jews emancipation, you would destroy the Christian foundations of the state. Mm-hmm. The same way that if you allowed atheists to be judges, you would destroy the Christian foundation of the state. So, so I think that in the minds of, of um, Christian conservatives, alongside all of the other stereotypes about Jews and, and prejudices, there was this confessional uh, argument that was being made by conservatives. Um, and, and, I, and I then show how even leading liberal anti-Semites like Heinrich von Treitschke in 1879 
he starts to talk suddenly about about the religious elements of the German identity. Right before that, he had been a good liberal. He thought that what would unify Germany was going to be, you know, national strength and a liberal constitutional order. Mm-hmm. In the late 1870s, he starts to say, "Well, the real essence of Christian, the the real the real essence of the German people is a is a Christian spirituality, Christian identity." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he becomes an, he's an anti-Semite, and he argues that the Jews, in fact, are behind all of the things that are destroying. Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I, I look at various ramifications of anti-Semitism and the way in which there's all of this kind of anti-secularism percolating up through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I even go and look at at the secularists. Uh, if you're, you know, if you want, we can go to that. But that's another whole can of worms. Philo-Semitism. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. It's fascinating. Well, well, philo-Semitism is is an, is uh, describes those people. Again, particularly non-Jews. I suppose you could have philo-Semitic Jews, but that sounds a bit <laughs> odd. But philo-Semites would be ones who uh, uh, have a positive, uh, envisions envisions a positive relationship to Jews that is going to then serve their own political ends, right? So the philo-Semitic um, secularists, which were a lot of these free religious people, they believe that if the Jews would convert to to uh, free religion, um, that they could not only um, uh, solve the Jew, the so-called Jewish problem or the Jewish question, uh, but they could also um, uh, fulfill the religion of humanity. Mm-hmm. So Jewish conversion was tied up with this notion of a universal German humanity religion, um, and it was also seen as a way of overcoming religious um, difference uh, that, that the Jews would no longer be their own separate community. Um, so the uh, there's all these kind of interesting ways in which that works out in intellectual history. So you, you have a lot of these materialists arguing that Jews should embrace secular Jews should embrace materialist worldview or monist worldview. And then you have Jewish secularists who are also organized in these free thinking associations saying, well, you know, worldview, it's too dogmatic, right? So you start to have a criticism of this dogmatism of worldview, which is really there um, from these Jewish liberal free thinkers. And my thinking is that behind it is this, this recognition by a lot of these Jewish liberals that belief in worldview, or let's say confession of worldview is similar to uh, giving up Jewish identity. And so they start to develop a new notion of spiritual unity for secularists. They start to develop the notion that ethics is going to be the mode that is going to bring German secularists together. And the reason ethics is different from worldview is that in their arguments, ethics is going to be derived not in contrast to religion, but rather out of religion. Mm-hmm. So the ethical precepts of all religions are going to be studied and we're going to recognize that there are say shared ethical precepts between the various monotheistic religions. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, uh, I guess Islam, but certainly Judaism and Protestantism, perhaps even Catholicism, uh, we're going to recognize that there are shared ethical values that are going to allow us to establish a spiritual unity. 
Mm. So Jews can stay Jews, Protestants can stay Protestants, Catholics can stay Catholics, but we will all agree to meet on the higher plane of ethical society or ethical culture. And uh, and I think that in, in, important in that is not only the fact that there are many Jews, liberal Jews involved in developing that discourse, but I think also that it is specifically taking place against the notion that there is a one universal worldview that everyone has to subscribe to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. It strikes me that that's a very circuitous route to what looks a lot like modern liberalism. If you see what I mean, in other words, yes, it's, it is true that there are a lot of religions. They do kind of contradict one another. They generally believe the same thing. You can belong to whatever congregation you want. That's fine with us. As long as, you know, you kind of generally adhere to this principle of this sort of code that we claim derives inductively from, all of your specific uh, confessions. Uh, yeah, and there's an interesting American part of the story too, which is that the this this movement of of ethical culture, which is one of these these secularist movements I examine, it had its origins in the United States in New York uh, by a, a rabbi. And Felix Adler came from a German family. I think he was even born in Germany. Uh, even went back to Germany for his university education, came back as a free religious preacher, <laughs> preached to his to his uh, his temple uh, congregation in New York in in same time period, 1877, and was more or less chased out because he was effectively a kind of, you know, deist, atheist in the eyes of this congregation. Mm-hmm. And then he founds this 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 movement called ethical culture. And I think you're right. I think there are a lot of elements of ethical culture that do uh, speak to a kind of general liberal standpoint, which we might term after World War II, something like secular humanism. Yeah, exactly. No, I've, uh, yeah. But, but I think that, that that's something that evolves. You know, I, I think that in the 19th century in the United States as well, um, religious toleration wasn't the order of the day. Uh, I, I don't know my history, American history very well, but I think there was a lot of religious intolerance. <laughs> uh, no, no, there wasn't. I think you're right about that. Um, I was speaking of a little bit later period. Yeah. And, uh, and almost the present, because that's kind of what we believe today. We, we see a lot of people of different religions, and we might even be religious ourselves. But I think that, and I don't want to be too explicit about this because I don't really know that there's this general sense, at least in the United States, that we all sort of believe in the same ethical code, despite our denominational or sectarian differences. Right, which was a, is, I suppose, a, um, a very, I don't want to use the word, but I will, pragmatic, maybe, uh, a tradition um, that's not, this doesn't have necessarily a very deeply rooted um, philosophical grounding except maybe this kind of faith in the original documents of the American revolution and the constitution and so on. But what's interesting about the ethical culture society in Germany is that for my money, they're still working within the same mental framework as the monists. Mm -hmm. They still want to have some kind of uh, spiritual unity of the nation. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, it may be that in American public sphere, there's an assumption about a, a commonality Right. And I think that there's, you know, John Rawls and others are kind of liberal thinkers of the of the recent past who who talk about shared values as an important element of uh, polity, mm-hmm. and the, Amer- the American polity in particular. Mm-hmm. But in Germany, in the, before World War One, certainly this notion of a, of a spiritual unity um, is shared across the board right? Mm-hmm. by liberals, by 
uh, these worldview monist by, you know, radical atheists and by these ethical culture people. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. I, I think it's the case that the American notion of hands-off religion, that is a very strong separation between church and state, that doesn't really come to Europe, if it's come to Europe even today, uh, until much later. Right. Yeah. I agree. So can you talk a little bit about, can you, so the, the book concludes, can you bring us kind of up, or should I say after 1914, what happens to the secularists? Well, the, um, you know, there, there is a revolution in 19, 19- 18 at the end of the first world war and you have the, uh, the Weimar constitution is written in 1919. Um, during the revolution, you have uh, some really very important free religious secularists appointed to high positions because they're, they're socialists and they kind of, it's a bit of chance and their own desire to get there, but they, they announce a radical separation of church and state in 1918 in Prussia. Uh, but that, that that is soon the churches then actively get involved in, in countering that and the, the it's taken back. Mm-hmm. And effectively, the Weimar Constitution is uh, a kind of a, uh, you know, a, a compromise solution between socialists who want full separation and the liberals and the religious parties who don't. So what you have is you have declaration of a separation of church and state. And at the same time, you have a continuation of all the privileges that churches <laughs> held under the old system. So, yeah. so yeah. you have, you have uh, church tax being you know, organized by the state. The, the, the clerics are members of, uh, they're paid by out of state, effectively out of these state funds, church, church, state funds. Uh, the churches continue to hold, uh, control over theological faculties and universities, and so on and so on and so on. They, they still oversee uh, elements of school education. Most German children are still in confessional schools. So there was there were all of these various reasons um, as to why this uh, movement of free thought could come back at the end of the Weimar Republic. And you have a period of, as everybody knows, at the end of the Weimar Republic, we have the emergence of national socialism. We have the emergence of, of strong communist movement in Germany. Um, they're contending. There's almost a state of civil war in, in the last three years of the Weimar Republic. And, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in studying now is really the, the role of religion in that latent civil war. Um, and that's the period in which these free thinkers become very active again. That's the period at which the Communist Party embraces anti-clericalism as one of their chief strategies to try to attack the uh, the existing order of Germany. Um, and and what's interesting at that period is that the, the Nazis make really great inroads with a lot of uh, Christian um, believers, mm-hmm. and particularly Protestants. Mm-hmm. And so one of the elements that I'm interested in is, well, what role does anti-secularism play in the embrace by Christians of national socialism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that seems contradictory because everybody thinks that national socialists are atheists themselves, uh, you know, kind of monists, uh, which is true um, of many of them. Uh, but what's interesting about the, the Nazis before 1933 is that they really... Uh, try to show very strongly that they are going to destroy secularism. So even though they draw philosophically from elements of secularism, uh, they champion, they, they champion the anti-secularist cause. Mm -hmm. And unlike some of the traditional conservatives, they're quite serious about it. And when they get into power, they, they, you know, they, they fire secularist teachers, they close, uh, secular schools, 
So they're really showing to the Christian conservatives that they mean business. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Christians flock to the Nazis mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in this time period. And so it's very interesting. So uh, thank you very much for being on the show and talking about the book. Uh, we have a traditional final question on new books in history, and you've already touched on what you're going to work on next, or you are working on next, but maybe you could just fill us in. What are you going to work on next, or what are you working on next? Right. Well, right now I'm writing a book that is, I suppose, in many ways, a sequel to the one that I've just described to you. So it does look at that period of the of the Weimar Republic, and it's it's going to focus really on the relationship of socialism to secularism, and go from around 1890 up until 1933. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's you know that's the next book. But I'm also um, working then on a project on on the history of worldview. So again, it's a related topic, but I'm, this one will go up to the present, and I'm interested in the ways in which um, argu- through arguments over worldview, and really the term worldview in Germany, but also in the U.S. and in Russia, through arguments over the term worldview, you actually have a dialogue going on between religious thinkers and secularists, or say religious thinkers and, and socialists, uh, about, uh, you know, what is the relationship between the sacred and the profane in in modernity? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a it's a really uh, interesting way of, you know, through this notion of a kind of war between secularism and religion, we notice that t- together uh, that in their struggle, they're actually developing a whole whole ways of of understanding the world. Mm-hmm. So I think if you in the year eighteen hundred. If you were to try to articulate something like worldview to a German commoner, they'd have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, I just don't think that they – I think the term worldview itself gave people the framework to think about religion and the world in totally new ways. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think that took place in the religious camp and in the secular camp. Uh, and, and what's very fascinating about this is that that term is appropriated in the late 19th century by especially evangelical Christians. And evangelical Christians start to um, talk about a Christian worldview. And what they mean, and this shows why it's important that you have the term worldview, they're basically recognizing that theology, right, divine history, it's not enough. To understand God and his relationship to man and Jesus and so on, it's not enough. We need to we need to be able to explain the physical world. We need to be able to explain, I don't know, sexuality and various other things. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they, they begin to uh, talk about something called a Christian worldview, and it's expanded, and it's exactly mapped onto what it is the seculars have. And and if you look today, if you go to the bookshelves of any, or rather, go to Google, type in worldview, uh, in terms of titles being published with that in the that term in the title, I'm just guessing a third of them are written by evangelical Christians. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I wouldn't have said that. Yeah, so it's uh, you know it's a fascinating um, sort of side story, and, and uh, that that book would then look at go all the way from 1790 from German philosophy all the way up to the present, mm-hmm. and look at all of the ways in which through this this term, um, you know, there's all these dialogues going on about religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds fascinating, and I hope that when you're done with both of those books, you'll come back on the show. I'm sure that you will. I'd be happy to. All right. That's great. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you very much for tuning in. You've been listening to New Books in History, and I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel, and I hope that you have a great week.